Father, we come before you as your people, and we worship you through the giving of our tithes and our offerings. Just like the wise men who came after the birth of Jesus and brought gifts and worshiped, Lord, we give to you because you are worthy. Make our hearts glad and make us free in this giving. And use these things for your purposes to accomplish all of the good things that you intend. Bless these gifts and the givers, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew 2, and we're beginning in verse 1. Matthew 2, verse 1, this is God's Word. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would open it now to us, that you would teach us and encourage us. Build us up, give us hope, help us to see with new eyes all that is ours in Christ. We pray in his mighty name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, in your homes at this time of the year, you probably have nativity sets that depict, along with the baby Jesus and the shepherds and Mary and Joseph, three wise men. We sang about them this morning. They're at the nativity scene in these hymns. We didn't sing We Three Kings of Orient Arts in our supplemental hymnal. We didn't include that one this week. It's there too. But would you be disappointed to know, and many of you probably already do, that the wise men weren't there, that there probably weren't three, and that uh, Jesus was, was not a newborn baby when they came and visited him. Now, this doesn't mean we go home and throw out our nativity sets or greeting cards with the nativity scene on it. Those are all fine. We'll keep singing the songs and so forth. What's more important than the sentiment, and there's a lot of sentiment that's wrapped up in Christmas, and sentiment isn't all bad. We just have to determine what is sentiment and what's truth and realize truth is more important than that which makes our hearts warm. 
But of all the things that we enjoy this time of year, from the Christmas carols to the nativity sets and our greeting cards, what is remarkable is that these Gentile astrologers were brought by the sovereign hand of God many miles to come and worship the King of Kings. Matthew's emphasis here, it's not on all the details that we wish we knew, and the details are interesting to think about, and we do speculate and kind of wonder how all this worked. The emphasis that Matthew gives us here is on the worship of the king. If Matthew had needed to include, if God wanted us to know exactly what the star was and how it worked, if we were to know exactly what the gifts were intended to represent, God would have ensured that Matthew included those in his gospel. But instead, the primary thing that we see here in terms of emphasis is the worship of the Savior who was born. Second to that, we see God's sovereign leading of those outside the nation of Israel. Were we writing the story? Were we imagining how it would unfold? This is probably not a piece of the puzzle that we would have thought. And God surprises us by bringing us Gentile pagans to come to worship the king. Additionally, we see the omnipotent preservation of this vulnerable child so that he might live to die, to become our righteousness, to become the first fruits of the resurrection, to reign forever and ever. So look with me beginning with verse 1 in chapter 2 of Matthew. And we see that Matthew says, now after the birth of Christ, he doesn't tell us how long after the birth, but we can fill in some of those blanks from further on in the text. For example, we're not reading this far in today, we'll get there in the coming weeks, but Herod orders the killing of all male children under the age of two. That tells us something about the answer that the wise men gave him when in verse 7 he asked them, when did you first see the star? When did the star appear? So evidently Herod determined that he needed to wipe out any threat that was two two years old and under. Also, when the wise men do arrive... And by the way, I just want to go ahead and say this, because when I I went through my notes, I actually found where I wrote, when the three wise men, (laughs) I'm probably going to say stuff today that I've just said isn't necessarily in the text. It's so ingrained. So if I say it, just cut me some slack. When the wise men arrive at the place where Jesus was, notice it's a house in verse 11. It's not the stable behind the inn where there was no room. So this is some time past. We don't know exactly how far Jesus was likely an older infant or a toddler at this point. Matthew also includes the place as Bethlehem of Judea. He's very specific here because this is what was foretold, Bethlehem in Judah. There was another smaller Bethlehem near Nazareth. This removes any doubt. This is Bethlehem of Judea. This is the king of uh, the city of King David. This is where the Messiah was to be born. And then he adds that it occurred in the days of Herod. This is Herod the Great. So he's given us a time frame. This is before Herod dies. Herod dies shortly after the birth of Jesus, probably uh, two to six years, depending on how dates are worked out. Uh, Herod the Great was... He was a fascinating figure. I kind of fell in the rabbit hole this week reading up on him. 
fascinating in kind of a terrible sense. He's obviously a wicked man because we see what he does. He was way more wicked than this. I mean, this is just one of many things that he did in his lifetime. But he also accomplished a number of remarkable things, including building some pretty incredible things and and the rebuilding of the temple. He called himself the king of the Jews, not because he was a Jew. He was actually an Edomite. He was a descendant of Esau, not of Jacob. And his descent is also fascinating from where he came. When you go back and you trace his ancestors to see who came before him, I wish we had time to dig into all that. We don't. If you're interested in that kind of stuff, I have a I printed a, a handout. And if you want that and you like reading that kind of history like I do, tell me and I can email it to you or give you a copy of that. It's nine pages or so. Uh, but it, it really is fascinating from where he came and just how the Lord worked all this stuff together. But he called himself the king of the Jews because Rome had given him responsibility over Judea. So he ruled over the Jews, not because he was a Jew himself. You know already just from the story of the birth of Jesus that he was kind of self-absorbed. I don't know if he would be a diagnosable uh, narcissist. If not, he certainly had narcissistic tendencies. Uh, And we see this not only with how harsh he was and how self-absorbed he was, but narcissists typically uh, become paranoid when they feel like they are their their power is being threatened and we see this here but again we see it in the other historical writings much more where he tried to remove so many people who he thought threatened his power so jesus then is born in bethlehem in the time of herod before herod dies and it was at this time that these wise men came from the east and notice in verse 1 they don't come to bethlehem They come to Jerusalem. That's where the wise men showed up. You know, in most of our songs and stories, we think of them going to Bethlehem. Now, they ended up in Bethlehem, but they they came to Jerusalem. And so they come into this large city, and they begin asking, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. Now, we note that these are wise men from the east, but nothing speaks of them here as being kings. I mentioned we three kings of Orient are. We can still sing that. It's not a problem. But there's just nothing in the text that says they're kings. They are magi or wise men. And we see this word in its various forms and other languages used over a long period of history. And over time, it represented different things. Daniel and his friends were made magi. It was magus in, in Chaldean. Uh, when they were in exile in Babylon. So this pattern of having uh, wise men who often gave counsel to kings and rulers and leaders, this was their function. But they included some things that we might look down our noses at a little bit, things like interpreting dreams, magic, sorcery, astrology. Now, at the time, and we would certainly debunk these things as superstitious in our own day, but at the time, they were looking for answers. And if you think about our own history and things that we practiced even 100 years ago that were considered scientific, we I don't think anybody does this anymore. We don't put leeches, you know, to pull out the bad things out of our blood. I think that's been mostly disproven. If anybody does practice that, I'm not trying to be offensive. I was just trying to think of something that most people don't do anymore. Look back at that and go, okay, that's that's not that's that's kind of been debunked. That really doesn't help. So it's not like we you know we don't need to become historical snobs here and look down at what they were trying to do. They were looking for the big answers. And they got wrapped up in stuff that was uh, that was superstitious. Uh, 
Of course, we know that it's also dark, and we're warned in Scripture against practicing this ourselves. But these are unbelievers. These are pagans looking for answers in their own ways and so forth. And they're looking for, in a sense, revelation. And they're looking upward, looking to the stars. Of course, as believers, we know better than this. We don't need to do this. God has revealed Himself to us through His Son and in His Word. And so we're not surprised not only from the the warnings against such practices, but I found it interesting in Isaiah 47, he kind of mocks this thing. He says, let your astrologers come forward, those stargazers who make predictions month by month. Let them save you from what is coming upon you. Surely they are like stubble. The fire will burn them up. They cannot even save themselves from the power of the flame. And it's you know kind of the same. That's, this is Isaiah's version of the same joke that you imagine when you drive through and see the the palm reader's shop or the fortune teller's shop, and you think, why is it in such a shabby building? You know, if they were really good at their job, they would know the right lottery tickets to buy or the right games to bet on. They'd be millionaires, right, if this was really working. Isaiah's kind of doing the same thing. Now, we don't do this as believers. God, again, has revealed himself to us. But this doesn't mean that God can't use these ways to reveal himself to unbelievers. And before you get uncomfortable with what I'm saying here, just for those of you who were not saved as children, who, who, who came to faith either as a teenager or, or an adult, just imagine what, what were you involved in? What were you connected to? Did God work in and through some of those experiences and things to draw you to himself? Was he, was he thwarted by anything sinful that you were doing to open your eyes? No. And sometimes he even uses those things. We might also think of, of stories, and again, this may not be something that you... I, I wasn't really comfortable with this until I experienced it, but when we were missionaries, uh, we heard, we met people. We heard the testimonies, not of one or two people, but numerous people who had dreams. And that was what started their seeking out the truth. Now, the common denominator in all the testimonies that I personally heard from people I met and got to know was that they all lived in places where there was no gospel presence or the gospel presence was was very, very limited, places like Libya and Tunisia uh, and other parts, uh, including the Middle East. So God can and does work through remarkable ways. We think in the Bible, the passage of, uh, um, tells the story of Saul of Tarsus, who was engrossed in his Pharisaic Judaism, and because of that, he was seeking to destroy Christians. He was on the road to Damascus to go and capture Christians, to bring them back, uh, to have them uh, uh, judged for what they were, who they were. And Jesus confronts him in a vision on the road to Damascus. Now, because these things happen, I'm just trying to show you how God can work. He's omnipotent. He can work in any way He wants. This doesn't mean that we seek these supernatural things. We don't need to seek these supernatural things because God has revealed Himself to us. But we know because He's all-powerful, He can work and speak in any way He wants, including Balaam's donkey, which I know is probably the cliche that, that, that we all fall back. If He can speak from Balaam's donkey, He can speak through anyone or any, anything. So these were pagan astrologers. They were looking to the stars. And what does God do? God calls them through the stars. We're not given all the details of how this worked out. There's some really good theories and ideas. I'll throw out one this morning. Uh, But we don't know the details. We're not given the details. But don't be surprised by this because this is what God does. God calls sinners to salvation. 
If you think that God called you because you figured it all out or because you were worthy or good enough, then you really don't understand the gospel. God calls sinners. God makes his enemies his friends. God changes hearts. He gives new life. It's not because he looked and said, oh, there's a great one. No, none of us are worthy. He saves us and makes us worthy. So here these are, three wise men from the east. Where are they from? We don't know. It could have been Chaldea in Babylon or Persia. Those are the two most common suggestions. It could have been from somewhere else. But these were men who were seeking to answer the big questions of life. Now, I said I'd throw out one theory. Uh, this is this is one. I, I'm not suggesting it as this is the answer, but I want to help you see that God often works. Now, we like to look at the extraordinary supernatural stuff. That's what gets our attention. But, but God often works through ordinary means, through history, through normal people orchestrating our lives. And can, can't we all look back in our own lives and realize and see that although we didn't know it at the time, but we look back and realize, oh, God was at work the whole Oh, he protected me here. Oh, he led us here. Oh, he, and we see it in retrospect, but we don't always see it in the moment. So this is kind of a theory in that, uh, in that vein. And that is that these wise men were from Babylon. And they had been passed down the traditions of Daniel and his friends. That one day a deliverer would come. In other words, and again, we don't know this for sure, they didn't look up to the stars and see a star and go, oh, a king of the Jews has been born, we should go to Jerusalem. But rather, they were looking for a sign of something they had already been told was going to happen. And we see this in Daniel 9 of him prophesying of a ruler who would come, a king who would come. And so if you, if you don't realize Daniel's influence, he, the Lord gave him such favor, even as a, as a, a Jew in exile in Babylon, in Daniel 2.48, we read, The king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all of its wise men. Daniel was in charge of all the magi. And so if he had any kind of impact, if he left any kind of legacy, it's quite possible that these ideas and teachings would have been passed down. Again, it's a theory and we're speculating, we don't know this, but I again want you to see that however the Lord worked, the emphasis is not on Daniel, the emphasis is not on the wise men, the emphasis is not on the star, the emphasis is on our sovereign God who ensured all the pieces of the puzzle would come together so that, that these, and I almost said it there, three wise men, these wise men, however many there were, showed up in Jerusalem and said, where is he? Where is the king? Now, I've said we don't know how many. The song tells us there are three. The pictures tell us there are three. It's a deduction from the three gifts that were given. But most scholars believe there were way more than three. And part of this has to do with the fact that men of this stature and learn uh, this uh, educational level, you know, the fact that these were men who, who counseled kings, they would have had servants and attendants. They would not have traveled alone on such a long journey. They would have likely had an armed force to protect them uh, as they went over this long distance. And so it is likely a large entourage that comes into Jerusalem of foreigners. And this is backed up by the fact that the whole city takes notice. 
It stirs up the whole city. I don't think you could make the same argument for three wise men entering such a, such a large city as Jerusalem as having even been noticed. This was a large group of people. Now, again, I said they weren't led to Bethlehem. They were led to Jerusalem. This is where their journey, it's not over yet. They only get to Jerusalem and, and this is where they're trying to find answers. Where has the king been born? They didn't, they didn't, for whatever reason, know the location. Maybe they didn't have that portion, that prophecy. It's not in Daniel uh, that they didn't see that uh, Micah had foretold. So it is logical then if this ruler of Israel is to be born, this king, that he would, you know, Jerusalem would either, he'd either be there or that would be the place to find out. So that's where they go. And we see that the, the star was the indicator. But Matthew doesn't use any language here about the star guiding them to Jerusalem. And I'm not trying to get picky here, but just in my own mind and, 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 and how it works, I was trying to imagine if they're in the east, east of Israel, and they see a star rise, where do celestial bodies rise? In the east. So if they saw his star rise, how did that guide them Westward to Israel doesn't make sense. So the star initially was simply a sign. Now, I know that stars move westward across the sky, um, but that still doesn't indicate that, that that was a guiding point in the text. So the star indicates that the, the, the Savior or the, the king had been born. And so they go on this quest to find the king. Later, it would guide them, it seems, in verse 9 to Bethlehem. We'll talk about that more in a second. Now, it's interesting to think of such a large group coming in Jerusalem, but what's more interesting is to note how Herod responds. His narcissistic tendencies led him into this panic. He's, 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 uh, he's troubled, the text tells us, because he thinks that his power is going to be threatened. Who are they talking about? What is, you know, this king? What, what is, uh, who, who is this king of the people that I'm supposed to rule over? Why haven't I heard about this? Why am I hearing about this from foreigners? You can imagine all the questions that go through his head. But notice, it's not just Herod who's troubled, but all of Jerusalem with him, verse 3 tells us. And this is too interesting to think about because the entire city finds out. Now, when something happens in Indian River County, uh, I have learned recently it doesn't take very long for everyone to know because we have things like Facebook and other social media and people post things and all of a sudden everybody knows. Uh, they didn't have social media, but they had their own version of getting the word around. And you can call it gossip or you can call it intrigue or whatever it was that motivated them. But this stirred up the whole city and now everyone is asking do you know anything about this? Have you heard about this? What is this? Who are these people? And the whole city is stirred up. Herod is just paranoid. He's just freaking out. He's just figuring out how he can protect his own power. And so he decides to go to the religious leaders. These are the Jewish religious leaders and ask where the Messiah was to be born. Notice that's his question that Matthew tells us. He doesn't ask where is a king to be born. He asks where is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. So although Matthew doesn't tell us this detail, 
somehow people were making that connection. I don't know that Herod made the connection on his own. I find that harder to believe. I think it's much more likely that other people were making that connection. Could this be the one? Could this be the Messiah? The Magi are coming asking for a king, and then the people in Jerusalem begin to put the pieces together. Either way, Herod now has this in his mind that this is the Messiah. This is the Christ who has been born. He goes to them, he asks them, and they tell him, it is Bethlehem of Judea. Matthew quotes the religious leaders, but they're quoting the prophet Micah who's told of this ruler who would come and shepherd the people of God. I find it interesting that there's no... Uh, you know, normally when we get any insight into the religious leaders, the, the high council and so forth, there's usually some kind of scuffle debate. Uh, there's often taking sides. There's discussion. We have none of that here. This was a unanimous answer. Where's the Messiah to be born? They knew the right answer. They knew the verse, right? Boom. It's Bethlehem. We know where he's going to be. And that troubles me a little bit. Uh, why didn't they get up and go to Bethlehem? Why didn't they go to these foreigners and say, tell us, what are you asking about? What do you know? Why weren't the religious leaders who knew the right answer, they knew the verse to quote, why were they not intrigued at all as to whether this was the Messiah? It's a warning to us to not allow our religiousness to become simply theoretical, where we can, of course, we know the right answer, we can quote the right verse, But if unbelievers came asking about our Savior, that we would treat them like these religious leaders did, as unclean Gentiles, as heathens. I remember trying to share our faith with people in Israel once, and they were bothered by it. They turned to discuss in Hebrew. I didn't know very much Hebrew, but I knew the word gohim. Uh, which is Gentile, but it's a derogative term. It basically means dog. And that was exactly how we were seen in that moment. This is how the religious leaders seem to act toward these foreigners. And may we never be like that toward unbelievers. Our faith should be so rock solid because of who Christ is that we are not threatened by the questions that other people have. We should be compassionate. We should be filled with mercy when people come and have genuine questions about the hope that is within us. And we should be ready to give an answer in graciousness and in compassion to anyone who would ask. Well, in the second section, we see Herod's paranoia kind of kick him into high gear. He wants to find out when the star appeared, and we understand why. He's trying to date how old is this kid going to be because his plan is to wipe him out. He does this all in secrecy partly because of his cunning and partly because he is planning to eliminate the the threat. And he finds it out, children under two, we know where that leads later on. But it's interesting that he gives the Magi the instruction to be his detectives. You guys go find the child and report back to me. I find that kind of just, you can just tell Herod's full of himself. I would think that if dignitaries from another country came in, that there would be some kind of like diplomatic respect and not this demand, you go do this and report back to me. You can see Herod is full of himself. But notice too his guile when he says to them that I may come and worship him too. We know this is the furthest thing from the truth. 
Well, as the wise men leave Herod's palace, now the star comes back into the story. And here is where it gets a little bit more perplexing because at this part of their journey, the star appears to go before them, Matthew says, and it rests, it comes to rest over the house where the child was. And this has led to a lot of discussion about what exactly the star is. Some have said it was a comet. Others said it was two planets that uh, conjoined in the sky to appear particularly bright. Some have even claimed it was a supernova that exploded and created this temporary bright light in the sky. Others, because of its guiding power, uh, claim that it was more uh, just a supernatural event that God established for this specific time to lead the Magi to the Messiah. Uh, Whatever it was, the emphasis is not on the details or we would have been given what it was. The emphasis is on the fact that the sovereign creator superintended the whole event the same way that he led his people through the wilderness with a a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God is quite capable of leading people where they need to go. But notice the wise men's response to the star in verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It tells us a couple things. One of the things that it shows us is that they had not seen the star for a while because they responded in this way. If they had been seeing the star the whole time, um, then, then this, re- this would not have been their reaction. But they, they react this way because the star is now back into the picture. That may lead you toward one of those theories, uh, whatever. Uh, you know, that, the, the theory isn't, again, what's important here. Um, what's important is what the text actually tells us. And Matthew kind of stretches his literary muscles a little bit to make sure we know how big of a deal this is. They didn't just rejoice. They rejoiced exceedingly. And not just that, but exceedingly with great joy. Matthew's kind of going over the top here to show us how thrilled they were that in this long journey through all of the, and, and we don't know what obstacles they faced, but we can imagine at this time in history that it was a difficult journey. They make it to Jerusalem. They run into all of that with Herod. They were probably scratching their heads trying to figure out what all that meant. And now they are standing in front of the house where the child is. And their response when they enter in is that they worshipped him. Here, these are, these are pagans, right? They, 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 they worship nature. They worship the created thing rather than the creator. And all that has changed. Whatever they understood, whatever God had revealed to them, he had opened their eyes enough to see that this child was worthy of worship. And as part of their worship, they bring him these gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now we know from the passage that we read this morning that these were prophesied. So part of the reasoning for these gifts is to fulfill prophecy. Beyond that, it's just speculation. There's some great speculation on why, what the gifts can represent and so forth. We're not going to, to, to take the time to look into all that. I think the emphasis here is beyond fulfillment of prophecy is that the gifts were valuable. And and, and to give a valuable gift shows honor. It shows worship. They gave things that required sacrifice on their part to give. And it speaks to how we give. That we are to give cheerfully. That we, we include giving as part of our worship. That it's in our order of worship. Because it brings honor to God. We don't give under compulsion. We don't give because God needs our gifts. We give simply because He is worthy. That's the message of this entire passage. 
The message of this entire passage is that Jesus is worthy of our worship. When the Magi left, they were warned in a dream to go a different way, and this now sets the stage with what we'll look at next week, and that is the persecution that was to come. Herod goes on the warpath, and ultimately we see that Jesus will be protected. I couldn't help but think of our recent study in Revelation. You remember the, 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 the incredible imagery that John uses when the woman is about to give birth, Revelation 12. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. We saw there how God preserved the child, and he preserved the woman, the church, carried her off into the desert, protected her. The son would be protected to accomplish all that it was purposed for him to carry out. Again, Matthew's emphasis here is on the worship of the king. This is what he is trying to communicate. I mentioned uh, in previous weeks that Matthew's intended audience were Jewish readers. He wants these Jewish readers to see, to understand, and believe that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. And to that end, he wants us, as his readers even today, to see that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. To fulfill prophecy, he puts on flesh and dwells among us. He is with his people. And he is worthy of the praise of all peoples, including, and and Matthew does this again, I think, for his Jewish readers to see that Gentiles are brought from afar. The nations are brought forth. How many times do we see that in the Old Testament prophets? That nations and kings would be brought. And, and, And so here we have these faraway Gentiles being brought, their eyes being opened to worship the King of Kings. The emphasis is on worship. Because so many of the Jews were looking for a political, a military, an earthly leader to deliver them. But Matthew shows them and us that God comes himself to accomplish for us what we could not do for ourselves. He comes to fulfill the law that we couldn't keep. He comes to fulfill the atonement that the blood of lambs and bulls couldn't attain. He comes to fulfill the holy place in the temple, bringing the presence of God to walk with us. Everything foretold, every sign that had been given, every promise made is fulfilled in this child. Because he is God, he is worthy of our worship. So come, all you faithful, come and worship. Come and adore him, Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your son, that you ensured all of these incredible details would take place to bring about your purposes to show not just that you accomplish the Deliverer coming, but that He came for the purpose in the flesh of dying, not just to bring Jews to faith, but to bring people from all nations, us Gentiles, people from all around the world, every nation, tribe, and tongue, to faith that you would do something so far beyond the imagination of your people at that time. Lord, we thank you that you have brought us in, that you have made us your people. We thank you that Christ is worthy of our worship. I pray that you would make our hearts glad to sing that worship unto you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's